One of the New Testament's favorite expressions is the two-word phrase, one another. Excluding the Gospels, the New Testament mentions at least 58 one another commands. For example, accept one another, bear one another's burdens, build up one another, care for one another, comfort one another, forgive one another, honor one another, be kind to one another, be hospitable to one another, love one another, pray for one another, submit to one another, serve one another, and the list goes on and on. These commands highlight the character of the relationships that should exist within the body of Christ. All believers have a responsibility to one another. And Romans 15 and 16 revolve around four more of these one another commands. Chapter 15, verse 5, be like-minded toward one another. Chapter 15, verse 7, receive one another. Chapter 15, verse 14, admonish one another. And then in chapter 16, verse 16, greet one another. The last two chapters of Romans focus on the Christian's duty toward one another. Well, verse 1 picks up where chapter 14 leaves off. We then, who are strong, ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Once two men, they were out in the woods, when all of a sudden a giant, angry grizzly bear jumped out of the bushes. Immediately, one of the men, he reached into his backpack, and he pulled out his running shoes. Well, his buddy said, wait a minute, you're not going to try and outrun a grizzly bear, are you? A full-grown grizzly bear can run 30, 35 miles per hour. While the guy was still tying on his shoes, he said to his friend, he says, don't worry, I'm not going to try to outrun the grizzly bear. All I'm going to have to do is outrun you. And sadly, this is the attitude of many Christians. Rather than bear with a weaker brother, what do we do? So many people run out ahead of them and leave them behind to be eaten by the spiritual grizzlies. Our goal should be to love one another, to bear with one another, to put others first, not just save our own skin. You see, the previous chapter warns us about using our freedom in Christ in a way that would cause our brother to stumble. Maybe you enjoy a glass of wine after your meal, but the brother or sister who struggles with alcohol, he sees you and he assumes if it's okay for you, then it's okay for him. Your example causes a weaker brother to sin. This shouldn't be. We need to bear with the weaker brother, the new Christian. Like taking a walk in the park with your toddler. You don't expect a child to walk at your pace. No, the adult slows down to stay in step with the child. And the same should be true for mature Christians. Our goal shouldn't be to flaunt our freedom or to prove our point. We should love and help other Christians grow. That's how we should live. Well, verse 2 tells us, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Paul quotes Psalm 69 verse 9. It's a prophecy concerning Jesus. Our Lord came to earth to bear our burden. Do we need to go any further than Jesus for an example of someone who forfeited his freedoms, his rights, his privileges for the good of other people? Jesus is the consummate example. We follow Jesus by realizing the impact that we have on others. He says, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Jesus is the ultimate example, but when it comes to examples, Jesus is just the tip of the iceberg. For the Old Testament gives numerous instances of people willing to forego their freedoms for the comfort of others. Noah and Joseph, and Moses, and Daniel, all bypassed the easy road and chose to live a life of influence for God and for the good of other people. And their impact was worth their sacrifice. They stand out as models for us. And 
here's an encouragement to open up and study your Old Testament. He says, whatever things were written before were written for our learning. The Old Testament stands as a magnificent source for inspiration and for example for every believer. And yet I find too many churches camp out in the New Testament. And the 39 books of the Old Testament become Scripture's lost continent. Realize 77% of your Bible, that's 77% of inspired Scripture is the Old Testament. How well do you know it? The stories, the pictures, the types, the principles, they're there for your benefit. There's much that a New Testament believer can learn and glean from the Old Testament Scriptures. Well, he says in verse 5, Now may the God of patience and comfort, and remember this please, the next time you fail the Lord and you worry that he might have given up on you. Apparently, the God in heaven wants to be known as the God of patience. Isn't that a great name for God? The God of patience. If you're a knucklehead like me, who's a slow learner and needs a lot of long-suffering This is great comfort. Our great God is the God of patience. And may God grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus. And here we have one of the New Testament's one another commands. Be like-minded toward one another. The idea is to be of the same mind, of the same attitude. Now in light of Romans chapter 14 and the topic of gray matters... I'm certain that Paul isn't advocating perfect agreement on all minutia of church life or even every detail of doctrine. But is it possible for us to be of the same mind when it comes to the big stuff? I think it is. The Bible is God's Word. Jesus is God's Son. Grace through faith is God's only salvation. The church is God's arms and legs to spread that salvation. Shouldn't we be able to agree on that? We certainly should. Remember the old adage, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, but in all things, charity. But notice how it begins. In essentials, unity. There are some non-negotiable ideas, doctrines that we need to hammer out and form a unanimity. And here's why we should be like-minded that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Realize our praise packs a bigger punch when it's offered corporately. It pleases God whenever He sees His kids glorifying Him with one mind and with one mouth. You know, when my kids were little, on very rare occasions... They would approach their parents with a unified front. You know, they would have gotten together, and usually Zach was the spokesman. Dad, we all want to go to Brewster's tonight for ice cream. Then I'd hear Natalie and Nick chime in. Yeah, Dad, we do. And then Mac would say, me too, Dad, me too. Me want ice cream too. They didn't know it, but I was usually so weary of their squabbling And so excited they could agree on anything, I would have given them whatever they wanted. And I think this is behind the offer that Jesus makes in Matthew chapter 18, verse 19. When he says, if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. In praise and in prayer, it delights God when we come to him with like minds. Therefore, receive one another just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. And here's another one another command. Receive one another. And when you give your life to Jesus, God receives you with open arms. And understand what that means. When the prodigal son returned home, the father didn't wait for him to walk up the road to the house. No, he ran to meet him. And he threw his arms around him. And he kissed the boy. And he welcomed him home. The father didn't hold the boy at arm's length until he had proven his sincerity. The wayward son wasn't placed on probation or bonded until his court date. No, he was given full membership immediately. 
The prodigal didn't have to wait 90 days for his benefits to kick in. And this is the way we should treat newcomers to the body of Christ. Whether they're new believers, whether they're renewed believers, whether they're just plain newcomers, let's receive one another just as Christ also received us. It's been said the Christian church is the only society in the world in which membership is based on the qualification that the candidate is unworthy of membership. Isn't that true? See, the church is definitely a grace place. That means we should be open to anyone who repents and believes. The church isn't a sorority to which you pledge or a country club to which you apply or a hospital that checks your insurance. We take everybody that Jesus brings us. Let's receive one another. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. And here he quotes Psalm 18 verse 49. For this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Now, you remember in chapter 11, Paul talked about God's plan for both Jews and Gentiles. It's God's will for both to be saved. Jesus is an equal opportunity Savior. He saves the circumcised and the uncircumcised. And here he reels off three more Old Testament scriptures to prove his point. Verse 10. And again he says, here he quotes Deuteronomy 32 verse 49. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Gentiles will join the Jews in rejoicing over God's goodness. And again, here he quotes Psalm 117, verse 1. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. Psalm 117, from which he quotes here, is the shortest chapter in the whole Bible. And it's ironic that the shortest chapter covers the most ground. For Psalm 117 wraps around the whole world. It predicts the spread of the gospel to the Gentile nations over all the globe. This was also my father's favorite psalm. On Wednesday nights when mom was at choir practice, it was dad's job to read us a chapter of the Bible. And it never failed. Every Wednesday night he'd read us Psalm 117, the shortest chapter in the Bible. Oh, praise the Lord, all you nations. Praise Him, all you people, for His merciful kindness is great toward us and the truth of the Lord endureth forever. Good night, boys. I was 30 years old before I realized that good night, boys, wasn't in the text. <laughs> A few years ago, my dad and I, we were driving through Snellville. I said, Dad, I said, you know, all you had to do was one night. Mom read us a chapter of the Bible six nights a week. You only had one night, and every Wednesday night you read us Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all you nations. Praise Him, all you people, for His merciful kindness is great toward us. Truth of the Lord endureth forever. Praise ye the Lord. He said, how many of those chapters your mom read you can you memorize today? <laughs> he had a point. Well, Paul's third quote and again, Isaiah says, and here he quotes Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 10, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he who, he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles shall hope. Now the root of Jesse is prophetic of Jesus. Our Lord Jesus came from Jesse's family tree, from Jesse's stock, through his son David. Isaiah says that a root of Jesse will reign over both Jews and Gentiles, that the Gentiles will hope in the Son of David or the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Verse 13, now may the God of hope, and here's another great name for God. If you want a name for God in your prayers, call him the God of patience. That's a great name for God. Also, call him the God of hope. Do you realize you serve the God of hope? That's, that's how he names himself. That's what, that's what he wants you to call him. How can you be out of hope tonight? How can you call any situation you face hopeless if you truly serve the God of hope? Recall that old song, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, where, where? You, re- you remember the song. You remember the song. You know, that's not the only line. It also goes, I've got the peace that passes understanding down in my heart. You, you know that. But you know, there are other verses to that song too. Here, here's my favorite. I've got the happy hope that heckles heathen down in my heart. Don't you love that? I got the happy hope that heckles heathens down in my heart. You know, that's what this world lacks. Our problems today seem insurmountable. Folks have no hope today. Yet we serve the God of hope. He gives us a happy hope that heckles heathens down in our heart. Our situation is never hopeless. Now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And isn't it the Holy Spirit that fills our hearts with hope? He's the one who blows that fresh wind into sagging sails. Verse 14, Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Here again, a third one another command. We've read, be like-minded toward one another. We've read, receive one another. And now we read, admonish one another. The word admonish means to remind or to caution. And when you see a brother who starts to stray, who begins to deviate off the narrow path, we need to get involved. It's our business to say something, to send them a warning. We've been called to admonish one another. Verse 15, nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you. Paul knew the believers in Rome were capable of admonishing one another themselves, but there had been a few points on which he admonished them. He wanted to explain and clarify. And aren't we thankful Paul took seriously his own command, admonish one another? If he hadn't, most of the New Testament would have never been written because what is it but warnings? and and admonishment toward the churches. Paul cared for the churches, and he was not afraid to confront them when necessary. So often we're afraid to confront our friends. We're afraid to step in when we see someone going astray, when an individual or a group begins to go a little sideways. We're timid to try to point it out. Real love is willing to admonish a brother. Paul finishes his thought in verse 16. Because of the grace given to me by God, that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul was known, of course, as the apostle to the Gentiles. The Gentiles were Paul's mission field. They were, in essence, his offering to God, and thus he wanted them to be godly. He wanted to offer a holy offering to the Lord. Well, therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient. And this was a wise policy. Paul here says he doesn't speak on subjects that he has not experienced personally. In other words, his preaching didn't go beyond his practice. And this should be true of us. Certainly, the truth is the truth, but it's definitely hard to speak convincingly of a truth that you've never tasted and known firsthand. Paul, he said that he preached what he practiced. And yet, with Paul, this wasn't much of a problem because his spiritual resume was really quite full of supernatural happenings. He writes in the next verse, For in mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about Elycrium, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Paul preached the gospel of grace, but his ministry came with miraculous displays of the Holy Spirit, what we would call signs and wonders. Miracles accompanied the message, and they should tra- be traveling companions whenever the gospel goes, and when, wherever it goes, and whenever it's preached. You know, Paul had been called by God to take the gospel to the Gentiles. 
And here he more or less files a progress report. He says he's logged miles from Jerusalem to around Elycrium. Do you realize that's 1,400 miles? 1,400 miles. In other words, from Mount Calvary in Jerusalem, where Jesus was crucified, where the earthquake, where the veil in the temple was torn in two, to Elycrium, which was northern Macedonia, where the earthquake rocked the Philippian jail, all across the breadth of the Roman Empire, countless lives had been transformed and redeemed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, in his heyday, baseball's about to start, so I'm, I'm going to bring out some baseball illustrations. Yeah. In his heyday, Roger Clemens had the most feared fastball among any pitcher in the major leagues. But because Clemens played most of his career in the American League, where the pitchers rarely batted, he never claimed, came to the plate to hit, except in an all-star game. It was Clemens' first pro at bat. He faced another fastballer, a guy named Dwight Gooden. The first pitch was a sizzler right down the middle. Roger stepped back. His eyes were as big as saucers. He turned to the catcher, Gary Carter, and he asked, he says, is that what my pitches look like? The answer was, yep. Roger Clemens later said that from that day forward, he pitched with more boldness and more authority, for he had forgotten how overpowering a good fastball can be. And you know, in the same way I fear that we forget the power of the gospel, that we might take it for granted, that we might lose our sense of how overpowering the gospel continues to be. This is the power of God to salvation that we preach. Here Paul reflects on his ministry, all that he's done to preach the gospel in power and truth, and the thousands of lives that have been changed as a result. He says the gospel is an overwhelming force then, and it's an overwhelming force today. Verse 20. And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel. Not where Christ was named. Lest I should build on another man's foundation. But as it is written. And here he quotes Isaiah 52 verse 15. To whom he has not announced they shall see. And those who have not heard shall understand. In other words Paul's goal was to reach the unreached. He tilled and plowed in unplowed fields. See, Paul was always targeting new areas for ministry. Paul was a pioneer at heart. And and I think we should follow suit. Let's pray that we never lose a pioneering spirit. You know, rather than a community center for fun and games, a church should be a rescue mission. We should be a spiritual emergency room for the hurting and the wounded. We should be reaching those that nobody else is reaching. Reaching out to those that are unreached. According to a recent poll I read, only 34%, that's about a third of Americans, claim to have accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Only a third. Only one out of three people you meet. See, rather than us focusing inward, we need to keep reaching out to the people around us who are lost for their plenty. Verse 22 tells us, For this reason I also have been much hindered from coming to you, but now no longer having a place in these parts. Remember Paul wrote his letter to the church at Rome from the port city of Corinth. But he was on the move, for he says, And having a great desire these many years to come to you, whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. For I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you, If first, I may enjoy your company for a while. Paul had a heart for Spain. It was his ultimate destination, he hoped. He wanted to voyage, take a voyage to Spain. And he says here that he'll lay over in Rome and he'll visit the church. Now, whether or not Paul ever made it to Spain, we really don't know. We're not sure. But we do know he journeyed to Rome, courtesy of the Roman government. You remember later he'll get arrested in Caesarea and Governor Festus, you know, will try him and eventually send him on to Rome. He met the church before he was tried before Nero. He says, but now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. 
Jerusalem was his immediate destination. For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. Paul was en route to deliver an offering that the churches in Greece had collected for the famine-stricken believers in Jerusalem. He says, It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors, for if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. And this brings up a very interesting principle. You see, the Gentile believers in Europe realized that they were standing on the shoulders of the Jews. The Jews had been chosen by God. They had been made custodians of the Scripture. The Hebrews were the heirs of God's covenants. It was also the church in Jerusalem that had sent out missionaries to the Gentiles in the church. You know, this is what struck me last week when I was in Israel. We stayed at a hotel right at the base of Mount Zion. And Psalm 48 kept running through my brain. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. In the city of our God, in the mountain of His holiness. And it kept hitting me. God chose the Jews. God chose Jerusalem. It was where He dwelt on earth. It was where He bestowed His blessing. And though God is gracious to Gentiles who trust in Jesus, we should never take His grace for granted. For God gives to whom God pleases. God is no man's debtor. We are a debtor to God. And we are a debtor to his people Israel. And how do you pay a spiritual debt? We all are debtors. How do you pay a spiritual debt? Well, according to Paul, it's with your financial resources. A spiritual debt can be paid with a monetary offering. In other words, we should support those who minister to us spiritually. Whether it's your church or it's your pastor or it's a teaching ministry somewhere, if someone is investing in you spiritually, then you should bless and support them financially. That's what Paul says here. The church in Jerusalem funded the missionaries who had taken the gospel to the Gentiles. Now it was time for the Gentiles to return the favor to the Jews. Verse 28. Therefore, when I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. But I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me. Pray for me, Paul says. The greatest thing you can do for someone is to pray for them. Do you know that? Man, I hope you pray for me. Paul requests their prayers. Notice the great apostle. The great apostle Paul needed the prayers of the humble saints in Rome. He said, pray for me and pray that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may be refreshed together with you. Paul says, pray three things for me, please. Protection from my enemies completion of my mission, and rejuvenation with my friends. This is how we can pray for each other. Protection from our enemies. Completion of our mission and rejuvenation with our friends. Romans 15 ends with Paul's salutation. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Chapter 16 is Paul's personal correspondence. He extends his greetings. And the emphasis that follows proves that Paul was not only a great soul winner, Paul was also a friend maker. In chapter 16, we'll notice that the apostle mentions 35 people by name, 35 different names. Remember, Paul had never been to Rome, yet he knew many of the church's members. He knew them by name. You know, it's amazing, while Paul was busy winning continents to Christ and writing most of the New Testament letters, he also spent time keeping up with his friends. Paul was a people person, as every Christian should be. Paul loved people. 
He loved the people Jesus died to save. You know, when you get too hurried or you too, feel too important for personal relationships, trust me, your priorities are out of kilter. Paul was a people person. He loved those Jesus died to save. And the first person Paul mentions is a gal named Phoebe. He writes of her. I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Sincrea. Now, Sincrea was the port city for the metropolis of Corinth. The Greek word translated servant can be rendered deacon. And this is one reason why I believe that women in the early church served as deacons. Remember, deacon was not a position of authority as much as it was of service. The deacons were the designated doers in the church. And there were women who served in this capacity, Phoebe being one of them. In fact, the Revised Standard Version renders verse 1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deaconess of the church at Sincrea. Even today, needs often pop up in church life that necessitate a feminine touch. That's why God appointed deaconesses to serve. And Paul says of this lady named Phoebe, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many and of myself also. Apparently, Phoebe was the letter carrier who delivered Paul's epistle to the Romans. Imagine, it was the spring of 58 AD. Paul hands over the scroll. And he watches his friend Phoebe slip the opus of our faith, this grand document of theology, up under her robe. He trusts her to get it to its recipients. And here he tells the church in Rome to receive her and respect her and assist her when she comes. But his greetings continue in verse 3. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Aquila and Priscilla. You know, they appear seven times in the scriptures and always as a team. Paul first met them in Corinth in Acts chapter 18. Like Paul, they were tent makers by trade. And everywhere Aquila and Priscilla settled, they ended up with a church meeting in their home, including here in Rome. Here was a couple who opened up both their hearts and their home to the Lord. I think that's great. Apparently, Aquila and Priscilla were successful at merging marriage and ministry. Here they offer their hearts and their home to Jesus, but they also offer their heads to Jesus. They put their heads on the chopping block, for Paul says of them, who risk their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. We don't know the exact incident Paul is referencing. I wish we did, but we don't. But Aquila and Priscilla were not fair-weathered friends. Somewhere along the line, they put themselves in danger in order to protect Paul. These were seriously faithful friends. Verse 5. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Remember, churches met in halls and in homes for the first 300 years of Christianity. We forget that, don't we? And it was the gospel's most expansive period. We had no single-use buildings or facilities, and yet the church exploded and grew all across the world. He goes on, he says, Greet my beloved Epinatus, who is the first fruits of Achaia to Christ. Epinatus was Paul's first convert in the region of Achaia or southern Greece. Other folks would follow, but Paul always remembered his first convert. He says, greet Mary, who labored much for us. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Apparently, they were an older couple. Andronicus and Junia were fellow Jews. And in the past, they had been arrested for Jesus' sake. They'd spent time in prison with Paul. They'd been believers even longer than him. And although we know little about them, Paul recognizes that they were respected and appreciated by the apostles at the time. Verse 8 continues to list Paul's friends in Rome. And notice he addresses them with terms of endearment. Greet Amplius, 
my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachys, my beloved. Greet Apelles, approved in Christ. I love these phrases, my beloved in the Lord, my fellow worker, my approved in Christ. The word approved means tried and tested. Apelles had been through the fire and found faithful. Paul had a deep love for these friends. Verse 10, greet those who are of the house of Aristobulus. Herod the Great, you remember Herod the Great? He was the infamous Herod who murdered the infants in Bethlehem at the time of Jesus' birth. Herod the Great had a grandson. Guess what his name was? Aristobulus. History tells us that Aristobulus lived in Rome. What an irony if this was the same Aristobulus. We don't know, but what what if it was? Imagine the brutal Herod's own grandson is now following the newborn king from Bethlehem. How amazing would that have been? On the other hand, the fact that Paul addresses Aristobulus' household and not him per se could depict an unbelieving husband with a believing wife and kids. This too could have been the situation. A whole family had been saved, but the stubborn husband kept dragging his feet. You know, if you, if you know such a family, you know what you should do? You should pray for that Aristobulus. Verse 11. Greet Herodian, my countryman. This too was probably a fellow Jew. Greet those who are of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Verse 12, I love this. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, who have labored in the Lord. And both names are feminine. Tryphena means dainty, and Tryphosa means delicate. The Greek word Uh, translated labored, means to toil to the point of exhaustion. So let's put this all together, and you could say, hey, tell dainty and delicate to roll up their sleeves and work hard for the Lord. I love that. These ladies with the prissy names apparently were rugged laborers. They weren't afraid to roll up their shirt sleeves and get to work. He says, greet the beloved Persis, who labored much in the Lord. This name is also feminine. The church in Rome sounds like Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain. It was full of ladies who were diligent servants and weren't allergic to hard work. We got some gals like that around our church. Verse 13. Greet Rufus. I love that name, Rufus. We should name one of our kids Rufus, Kath. Should have named one of them Rufus. Fifth one, okay. (laughs) Forgive me for bringing that up. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord and his mother in mind. Now, Mark chapter 15, verse 21, tells us the man who helped Jesus carry the cross. You remember him? Simon the Cyrene? He had a son. His name was Rufus. Mark 15, verse 21. Many folks believe this is the same guy. Apparently, Simon the Cyrene... The seemingly random selection out of the crowd that day who was made to carry the cross of Jesus, apparently his experience with Jesus led to both him and his family's conversion. Evidently, Simon returned home to Cyrene, led his wife and sons to Christ, who later moved to Rome, and now Paul greets his son, Rufus. Greet a syncretus. Phlegon, Hermas, Petrobus, Hermes, and the brethren who are with them. Here's all a group of men. And all that's listed about them is their names. Apparently this was the OFC of the Church of Rome. The group that met on Friday morning. Yet imagine when they got this letter. And imagine what they thought when they saw their names in the Bible. When they saw their names in Paul's letter. Wow! He remembered us! You know, whether you know it or not, your pastor loves you. 
even when he can't remember your name. You know, sometimes I, I, I'm really bad at remembering names. I've known some of you for years and years and years, and I, yet you walk out the door and I draw a blank, and it, it's just me. But whether or not your pastor remembers your name, you need to realize that Jesus always remembers your name. John 10 verse 3 says of our good shepherd, he calls his own sheep by name. Jesus addresses each one of us by name. He knows us personally, intimately. You know, visit the old natural bridge in Virginia and you'll see hundreds of names carved in all of the boulders around that bridge. But near the top, you'll see the name George Washington. That's right. Even the father of our country couldn't resist resorting to some personal graffiti. You know, we all love to hear our name spoken. We all love to see our name written. I have a friend who worked with old folks, and he told me the secret to relating to the elderly is to call them by their first name. You know, when you're older, you're everybody's elder. And so you're very frequently referred to as Mr. or Mrs. Thus, you rarely hear your given name. We all, young and old, love to hear our name. Remember, Paul is writing the Bible. He's got limited scroll space. He has strategic subjects to cover. Yet it's interesting to me that he leaves room at the end of the scroll to mention these saints by name. I just think it adds credibility to the old saying, God loves each one of us as if there were only one of us to love. That statement is very true. Verse 15, greet Philologus. Philologus, that's how you say it. Philologus. Greet Philologus. Greet Philologus. Now you hear the word logos in there? The name literally means lover of the word. Future parents, not me, future parents, here is a super name for your next baby. Philologus. Reminds me of the little boy who wanted a Bible just like his mom's. He asked, he said, Mommy, I I want a Bible just like yours. She said, why don't you want a Bible like your dad's? He said, Mom's Bible's more interesting. She always reads hers. Dad never picks his up. Ooh, ouch. I hope we all, both men and women, are deserving of the name Philologus. Are we lovers of the word? I hope we are. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister Olympus, and all the saints saints who are with them. Now greet one another with a holy kiss. And here's one more one another command. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And notice the operative word there, holy kiss. Versus lustful or sneaky or Judas kiss. Actually, in Roman culture, a kiss was a common form of greeting. It was like our handshake. Paul is, in essence, telling us to greet each other with a holy handshake. Verse 16, the churches of Christ greet you. Obviously, it delighted all believers all around the world to know there was a church at the heart of the empire. All the churches send their greetings through Paul to the church in this strategic city of Rome. In August August of 2017, Uh, Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain, we took a team to Austria to minister at a retreat that we did for the Calvary Chapel in Rome. And then we traveled to Italy to minister that Sunday at their church. And you know, when I was there in the church at Rome, I felt the same sense of importance as Paul senses here. Today in the church at Rome, in the Calvary Chapel at Rome, There's a collection of believers. They're at the epicenter of Catholicism. And wow, how they need our encouragement to take the gospel to religious people who don't realize their lostness, who think that they're saved due to their relationship to a church. You see, the church at Rome is still a big deal. 
with a big task. We should pray for them. Paul writes in verse 17, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. Note those that cause divisions. A Sunday school teacher once asked her kids to define false doctrine. One little girl replied, It's when the doctor gives the wrong stuff to people who are sick. Well, that's false doctrine. But the definition also applies to false doctrine. Giving the wrong stuff to those that are sick. We need to guard against both false doctrine and false doctrine. Realize Paul instructs us to note, to earmark, to point out those who stir up strife and conflict. And that that involves identification. How can the church avoid divisive and offensive people unless their leaders point such people out? Of course, this requires discretion. I think this is one of the most unpleasant but most important responsibilities of church leadership. Verse 18. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. You know, unfortunately, the deceiver, the divider, doesn't wear a sandwich board around his neck identifying himself as a rogue. On the contrary, he's a slick dealer. At first, you don't suspect him. A man of God, sincerely pursuing the Lord, speaks only what God wants him to say, whereas a religious leader out for himself tells people what they want to hear. And it's due to his flattery that this troublemaker can develop a following. That's why he can't be tolerated, not even a little bit. He'll deceive simple minds and manipulate gullible hearts. That's why we need to ID him, and then we need to avoid him. Verse 19. For your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I am glad on your behalf. But I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. In other words, be experts in what's good and and be naive to what's evil. We don't need to know what evil's out there. Trust me, it's plenty. Verse 20, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. What a great promise to hold on to. God of peace will crush Satan under our feet shortly. Don't worry. It's coming. Victory's coming soon. Paul mentions this ancient promise of Genesis 3, verse 15. It foreshadows the future. On the cross, the serpent bruised Messiah's heel. But in the end, Jesus will crush the serpent's head and strip him of all his authority. The Bible tells us that at the end of the age, Jesus will return. And those who believe in him will return with him. And our first order of business will be to crush the Antichrist and his armies. We'll share in Christ's ultimate triumph over Satan. It's going to come. As Paul says, it's going to happen shortly. Verse 20 ends with another salutation. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Sounds like Paul tries to close this letter several times, but he thinks of more to say. Verse 21. Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my countrymen, greet you. These were Paul's colleagues with him in Corinth. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Now, don't get confused. Paul, not Tertius, is the author of the book of Romans. Tertius, though, was Paul's stenographer. And it was Paul's custom to dictate his letters to a scribe Then at the end, he would reach over and pick up the pen himself and add his signature at the bottom. Here, Tertius adds his own greeting. He says, Gaius, my host, and the host of the whole church greets you. Apparently, Paul was staying in the church in Corinth, was meeting in the house of Gaius. Erastus, the treasurer of the city, greets you. The treasurer of the city would have been a very important person, a Roman dignitary in Corinth. A high-ranking public official had embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ and was part of the church. In fact, several years ago, we traveled on a Footsteps of Paul tour. And in Corinth, our guide showed us an inscription in the stones that lined the main cardo or the main 
street in the city of ancient Corinth. And guess what it referred to? Guess what was written right there in the stones? It referred to a city official named Erastus. New Testament scholars believe it's the same Erastus here mentioned by Paul. It's kind of cool to go and actually see it in the stones. And Quartus, a brother. The name Tertius and the name Quartus are the Greek numerals three and four. In the Roman world, oftentimes slaves were never given proper names, just a number. It's possible that these two believers in Christ, Tertius and Quartus, or three and four, were former slaves, now considered brothers in Christ. Boy, the power of the gospel. I told you it's overwhelming. Never underestimate the revolutionary impact Christianity had on slavery in the ancient world. Overnight, slaves and nobles became equals in Christ, brothers and sisters in the Lord. Paul closes his greetings in verse 24. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And he adds a benediction. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Jesus is able to establish us in our faith. His gospel bulldozes sin and buries doubts and packs a firm footing on which we can stand. Once a wino, a drunkard, an inebriated fellow, he approached D.L. Moody after a meeting. He was drunk as a skunk. And he shouted, he said, Mr. Moody, I'm one of your first converts. Moody replied, you must be one of my converts because you sure don't look like you were converted by the Lord. Hey, Jesus causes us to stand strong, not flounder and flail. He causes us to mature and stand strong according to his gospel. The gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ is according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. To God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. And with that final flurry, Paul concludes his glorious letter to the Romans.